the, the backdrop of what's going on in the book of Samuel right now. For decades, Samuel has led Israel as the last of the judges. Remember, Samuel, unlike all the other judges, the judges in the book of Judges, Samuel is a national leader. The judges in the book of Judges are really more regional leaders. Samuel leads the entire nation, and you remember the, the Hebrew verb shafat, make it a participle, and, it, and it's shafat is to judge, and, ju- and judge means to lead, to rule, to be a military leader, to be a political leader, to adjudicate disputes between parties. You make shafat a participle, and you, you get the... the the word judge, the one who does the shafating, the one who does the judging. And so that's the word that describes the judges. Samuel is the last of the judges. He's distinct from the others because he rules the nation itself and he has delivered great prosperity and peace. Actually, the Lord has delivered it through the great judge Samuel, but he's getting old and the people know that he's not going to be there forever, and they look at his sons, and his sons are a complete mess. His sons are corrupt. His sons, the people do not want to take his spot. And so Israel, the elders of Israel, become tired of the judges. They want an alternative office. And so they say to Samuel, give us a king like all the nations. Nothing wrong with having a king. God had prophesied that Israel would have a king. It's the phrase, like all the nations, that's the problem. And it's a big, big problem, as big as Dallas. It's a huge problem, the phrase, like all the nations, because it reveals a mental attitude. It reveals a worldview of the people, which was that they were rejecting God and God's design for Israel. Israel, of course, was supposed to be unique among the nations, not like all the nations, kind of like a Christian. A Christian is not supposed to be like the world. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world. Israel wanted to be conformed to the world. They didn't want God's special design for the nation, and so they wanted a king that was not unique. They didn't want a king that fit the pattern that God had designed a king of Israel for, Deuteronomy 17. They wanted a king like all the other nations, so that they could be like all the other nations. The kings of other nations accumulated wealth and amassed armies and accumulated large harems, which really ultimately were a a representation of political alliances, of political marriages. But God said, your king will do none of those things. You see, God's design for the king in Israel was the design in Deuteronomy 17 where the king was to write a copy of the Mosaic Law for himself. He was supposed to copy it. He wasn't supposed to just get a copy of it, say, oh, thank you, Mr. Levitical Priest. No, he was supposed to painstakingly, if you've ever written the Hebrew letters, you know that that is not an easy task, right? We get our pen and we just kind of write cursive. Doctors write it so fast, lawyers write it so fast that many people don't even know what they are saying. Well, with the Hebrew, they're almost like hieroglyphics. It is a slow, detailed task, even though they know the letters. But God called the king of Israel. This is the pattern. This is the design that God had 
established for the king of Israel that he would write the law, a copy for himself, and he would read it all the days of his life. That's what the language says in Deuteronomy 17. So that he would learn to fear the Lord his God. Because it doesn't come natural. It's not natural to us to fear God. It's supernatural to fear God. But we come and we learn to fear him, as the king was supposed to do, by studying the word. And so Deuteronomy 17 also laid out that this was the design of Israel so that the king of Israel would not become arrogant and prideful, so that his heart would not become greater and, and think in this arrogant attitude like most of the kings of the nations, because most of the kings of the nations were very cocky. And finally, in Deuteronomy 17, all of these things were so that the king would obey God's commands. But this is not the king, the type of king that the people want. They don't want a God-type king. They want a king like the other nations. So God told Samuel to warn the people that the king that they wanted the type of king that they wanted, like all the nations, would do many unpleasant things to them, to their family members, to their property. After the warning is issued in chapter 8, the people say, great warning, we change our mind. Right? No. The people ignore the warning. They say, whatever, we want a king. We want what we want, and we want it now. And so they demand a king like all the nations. God instructs Samuel, who is beside himself. Remember the word that we saw in chapter 8 describing Samuel's response? It was ra'ah in the Hebrew. It sounds the way it means. It's not good. It's a word that is translated, it was displeasing. And when you really drill down to the Hebrew word ra'ah, it means evil. It was displeasing, evil in the sight of Samuel. And Samuel is incredibly offended at the people's request to have a king like all the nations. But God says to Samuel, give them what they want. Give it to them. This is how chapter 8 finishes. And so then in chapter 9, we get introduced to the man who would be king. Last time we were together, we kind of flew through the first 14 verses of chapter 9, kind of as an intro. So let's circle back and look at those verses again in a bit more detail. Chapter 9, verse 1, begins like this. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. That's 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1. Here what we're seeing is the pedigree, the family pedigree of Saul. It's an impressive family pedigree. His father, Kish, it says, is a mighty man of valor. In the Hebrew, it's Gibor Hayil. It's the same phrase that is used for that impressive, impressive man in the book of Ruth. Boaz. In Ruth, Remember, we studied Ruth, chapter 2, verse 1, describes Boaz as a gibor hayil. It's a term that describes wealth and privilege and power, almost even a chieftain of a leader of his clan. That's who Kish is, the father of Saul. Keep reading verse 2. Kish, 
He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among all the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, and up he was taller than any of the people. First, we get Saul's impressive family pedigree in verse 1, that he is the son of this powerful, wealthy chieftain. And now in verse 2, we get a description of his physical appearance. It's impressive. He is described as the most handsome and the tallest among his fellow Israelites. The point is, the point that's being communicated to us is that Saul fits the people's design perfectly. He fits their design of what they want. They want a king who will be impressive like the kings of all the nations. And this Saul, Saul fits very well. The name Saul in the Hebrew is Shaul, and it means asked for. That's what Saul, Shaul means, asked for, requested of. Because Shaul, the name of this person, comes from the, from the verb Sha'al, which means to request. You see the irony there, right? I mean, this is the king that the people requested, and this is the king that God gives them, a king whose name is asked for. Saul doesn't fit God's design for a king, but he fits the people's design for a king perfectly. He's a Benjamite. We see from verse 1 of chapter 9, and we know that that means he doesn't fit God's design for a king. We know that up front, as we saw last time, because Genesis 49.10 said the kingly line would come through the tribe of Judah, not through his brother Benjamin. But the people don't care about God's design. Now the story is going to take an interesting shift. The story is now going to start talking about something that seems insignificant. Donkeys. Donkeys that are lost. But God is always at work. Always. Even through donkeys, as we will see as this story unfolds. Look at verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, this is the, the donkeys of the father of Saul were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, take now with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. Donkeys are livestock. Donkeys are valuable. Donkeys were used to carry things like, like, like a beast of burden. They were used to plow fields. Some people even rode on them. Jewish kings, for example, would ride on donkeys. These are, th- this is valuable property that the father of Saul, Kish, has lost. So he sends his son to go find them. Keep reading verse 4. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim, the he here is Saul, passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed, <clears throat> excuse me, and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. Remember Saul, the they is Saul and his servant. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. Verse 5, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. They travel quite a distance here searching for these donkeys. They travel... 
through the tribal region of Benjamin, kind of this small region here, and they travel, they, they travel through the, the region of Ephraim. This is a map that we saw back when we were studying the judges. It has all the different judges on it, but what I really want to focus on here are these two tribal regions. Saul and his servant are, are, are looking for the donkeys here in, in the region of Benjamin and in the region of Ephraim. We don't know exactly where Shalisha and Sha'alim are, but when it comes to Zuf, you see Zuf here mentioned in verse 5. Zuf is in Ephraim. Zuf is where Samuel's from. That's where his father was from. We know that from the very first verse of the book of Samuel. It's here that Saul says, let's go home. When he gets to Zuf, the area that Samuel's from, he says to his servant, let's go home. We've been looking for these donkeys long enough. Let's go home so that my father doesn't worry. This is a legitimate concern. Right? They've been gone, we'll learn as the, as the events unfold, they've been gone three days searching for these donkeys. And Saul is concerned that his father's going to be worrying. Later in chapter 9, we'll see that, that, this is a, that, that the donkeys ultimately will be found, but right now Saul doesn't know that. And so Saul says, I'm concerned about my father, and let's go home. I think what's happening is we're being told something about the character of Saul. It's more than him being concerned that his dad is going to be worried about them. I think what's happening here is the text is communicating that Saul does not take the task of shepherding these beasts, these donkeys, as seriously as he should. Because we're going to get a different picture as these events unfold. We're going to get a different picture when it comes to shepherding that Saul does here with these donkeys and shepherding that David does. Remember, David is assigned to shepherd his father's sheep. And when the sheep gets snatched by a lion, David goes and risks his life to save the sheep. When the sheep gets snatched by a bear, David goes and risks his life to save the sheep. Here we have a different scenario, a different approach with Saul, the first words that are recorded for Saul in the Bible are these words here. They're words of, let's quit. It's time to quit. It's time to go home. I think the text is telegraphing that this man is not going to be a good king. Keep reading. Verse 6 says, He said to him, the servant said to Saul, Behold now, there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. This city, you see this phrase, this city in verse 6. It's the city that's nearby. It's the city of Ramah where Samuel lives. Samuel is the man of God that is being referred to here. Saul was from Gibeah. Look at these cities here. You've got Gibeah which is where Saul's from. Samuel lives in Ramah. So they're all in the region of of the tribal allotment of Benjamin. Saul is from Gibeah. Samuel lives in Ramah. And you've got Jerusalem close by. Gibeah is about three miles north of Jerusalem and about five miles south of Ramah where Saul 
lives. Which, as you read through this, you see something troubling. There's something that's very disturbing about this account here. What's disturbing is you've got Saul who lives five miles away, about the distance from the post office to Ladybird Park, give or take. Five miles away. And Saul knows nothing, nothing about Samuel, the spiritual leader of the nation who's been leading the nation for decades. Something ain't right here. Something is amiss when it comes to the spiritual situation of this man, Saul. It's not Saul who knows about Samuel. It's the servant who knows about Samuel. It's the servant who says, we should go consult this man of God who could help us find the donkeys. Because from Saul's perspective, he says, hey, it's time to quit. It's time to go home. It's the servant who speaks up and says, no, maybe we should go consult the man of God. Maybe we should go consult Samuel, who could help us find the donkeys. We're getting a picture right up front when it comes to Saul that he is spiritually dim, spiritually dull. The narrative is pointing us to the spiritually sharp other people, to the spiritually sharp servant. And we'll see others who are more spiritually sharp as these events unfold in chapter 9. Keep reading in verse 7. Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man. What do we have? Here we should give praise where praise is due. This is an appropriate response by Saul. Saul is right to honor to want to honor the man of God. He's right to want to honor Samuel. The Old Testament practice was that you brought a gift to God's servant when you asked God's servant to give you the revelation of God. Paul repeats this same concept in the New Testament. In 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18, there we read, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Paul there is quoting from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 25 verse 4. So we should give praise where praise is due. Paul's attitude of we shouldn't show up empty-handed as we ask for a word from the man of God, that's an appropriate response. But keep reading. Verse 8, the servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Notice the writer of 1 Samuel is giving us a picture. Saul is the one who sees the problem. Saul's not the one who sees the solution. It's the servant who has the solution. The servant has the fix to the problem, not Saul. Saul says, eh, we don't have any bread. We don't have anything to give to the man of God. What do we do? And it's the servant who says, well, I got the solution. I've got some silver in my pocket. Verse 9 says this, formerly in Israel, when a man went, in, went to inquire of God, he used to say, come and let us go to the seer. For he who was called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. 
As we saw last time, this is kind of a parenthetical note for us. Prophets used to be called seers. Sometimes prophets would reveal the will of God, the word of God, and sometimes they saw the things of God that the other people couldn't see. Here, Saul and his servant went to Samuel. They're going to Samuel so that Samuel will see where the donkeys are. Are they five miles that way? Are they ten miles that way? Where are the donkeys? See them, seer, so that you can tell us where they are, and we can go retrieve them and bring them home. Verse 10, Then Saul said to the servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Well said in the Hebrew literally is, Your words are good. In other words, You've persuaded me, servant, you've persuaded me that we should go to Ramah to consult the man of God. This is not a good sign for the future king. This is the future king, Saul, lacking spiritual initiative. He's not a spiritual leader. It's very wise for a leader to receive advice and recommendations and consultation. That's what a wise leader does. That's not what's happening here, though, with Saul. With Saul, he kind of lacks the initiative. He lacks the spiritual initiative, and it's his servant that has to guide him to Samuel. Verse 11, As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is, see, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today, for the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up, for you will find him at once. That's what the the young women who, the, who were going to get water, that, that, that's what the young women told them. Verse 14, So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. There are two things that we should see here in verses 11 through 14. Number one, take note of what the, women, the young women say. They say, The people wait to eat until Samuel arrives and blesses the sacrifice. That's what they tell Saul and the servant. They say that the people wait until Samuel has given a blessing of the food and the sacrifice. In other words, the people in Ramah obey God's agent. They obey God's servant, Samuel. This is, I believe, giving us foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing the opposite of what will happen with Saul. Saul will disobey God's agent. Saul will disobey After Saul has become king, Saul will disobey Samuel. And as a result, God will remove the kingdom from Saul and give it to another, who the text will describe, another who is after the Lord's own heart. So the first thing that I want you to see here is the language that the young women use in terms of obedience of the people, obeying the agent of God, Samuel. The other thing I want to focus on is this phrase, the high place. The high place is used three times in our passage here. It's a common place of worship. 
the high places were common places of worship in the land of Canaan. Usually it would be on a hill or some other elevated location. Before Israel entered the land, God warned the Canaanites, God warned the Israelites about the Canaanites' high places. Because at the high places, the Canaanites would engage in idolatrous worship. Look at the warning that God gave in Numbers, 31, Numbers 33, verse 51. Here God says to Moses, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, This is before they're going to enter into the land. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their molten images and demolish all their high places. See, what the Canaanites would do is they would build a place of worship at some higher elevation. Because if you're at a high, higher elevation, that means you've got higher access to God, right? The people in Denver have higher access to God than the people in Houston, right? Because Houston's near sea level and Denver is way up in the mountains. Well, of course that's not true. Of course that's not true. But the way the Canaanites thought is they thought the higher we, we, we are when we're worshiping at a high place, then the, the closer our access and the more likely it is that the gods who we're praying to will grant our request. And so often at the high places, the Canaanite high places, there would be altars, sacrifices would be given, there'd be a feast of that which was sacrificed, and they would worship male and female deities. Here are a few images of high places that, that there are ruins of. This is a high place at Lachish. Lachish is in the southern part of Canaan. And so you can see the old, what's left of the old altar there at this particular high place. Here's a high place, high place at Dan. Dan is in the far northern part of the land of Israel. And sadly, this high place was most likely installed by the king of Israel, by the king of the northern kingdom, not by the Canaanites, but by King Jeroboam I. Then here's a high place at Petra. This Petra was the capital of Edom, of the Edomites, and so this was a, a place of worship, of pagan worship that the Edomites, where the Edomites did their idolatry. God ordered the Israelites to destroy the high places of the Canaanites, lest the Israelites be tempted to wander on up there and see the altar and see the images of the female deity and the male deity and say, hey, uh, why don't I worship like you guys did? So God instructed the Israelites not only to destroy the people who were there, the, the Canaanites, but also to utterly destroy their high places. Sadly, Israel ignored God's warning. And the Old Testament is full of descriptions where Israel is worshiping at the high places places. So frequently we find words of condemnation for Israel's worship at the high places. Leviticus 26 verse 30, God says, this is in the law, God warns about punishment for worshiping in the high places and he says, I then will destroy your high places, talking to Israel, not talking to the Canaanites, 
talking to the Israelites, I then will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and heap your remains on the remains of your idols, for my soul shall abhor you. Those are pretty strong words from God to his people for the worship at the Canaanite high places, for the idolatrous worship that the Israelites picked up from the Canaanites. Or Jeremiah 19, verse 3 reads like this, Thus says Yahweh Sabaoth, thus says Yahweh of the armies, the Lord of the armies, the God of Israel. Behold, I am about to bring a calamity upon this place, the place there is Jerusalem, at which the ears of everyone that hears of it will tingle, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place, Jerusalem, an alien place to God, because it's full of idolatry and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods, and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire and burnt offerings to Baal. You read that correctly. You heard it correctly. The Israelites would burn their children in the high places. Their little babies, their little boys and their little little girls, they would burn their children to worship to the false gods of the Canaanites, and they would do it in the high places, it would be bad enough if they sacrificed an ox or a sheep to Baal. But here God is describing this grotesque human sacrifice of their own children at the high places. So we have to ask ourselves, what in the world is happening in 1 Samuel 9 when you see the high place that the man of God, that Samuel himself, is worshiping at, right? Because the, the, the young women describe Samuel They describe the routine of Samuel, that he goes up to the high place and he's going to bless the sacrifice and then there's going to be a meal. And it's described, the phrase high place is used three times all approvingly, all with words of approval in 1 Samuel 9 verses 12 and 13. What in the world is happening? Because we see all of these, and I just have two on the screen, there are many, many more, Descriptions of God's condemnation of the Israelites worshiping at the high places. Here's what's happening in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. That era, the era of 1 Samuel, at least this part of the book of Samuel, is occurring during a time period where there was no formal, no official place of worship in Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is not at the tabernacle. It's at Kiriath-Jearim in the house of Abinadab. We studied that just two chapters before in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. The Philistines have destroyed Shiloh where the tabernacle was located. So there's no formal, official place of worship for the Israelites. There won't be for a few generations. There won't be an official place of worship for the Israelites until Solomon builds the temple. The law, the Mosaic law, said that the people were not allowed to worship or offer sacrifices wherever they wanted to. There was a single location where they were to to offer sacrifices and engage in collective worship with God. That would be the location that God would designate. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 12, verse 5 and verse 11. It doesn't specify the location there in Deuteronomy 12. It says you will worship at the location that I designate. First, it would be at the, at the tabernacle, and then later it would be at the temple when Solomon builds the temple. 
The point is, there isn't a specific location. The ark is not at the tabernacle at Shiloh where it was before, remember, the, 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 the Israelites removed the ark to bring it into the battle and they thought it was going to be a magic mojo for them and they'd lose the battle and the Philistines take the ark. Then ultimately God punishes the Philistines and the Philistines say, get that out of here because God imposed this horrible plague on them. And then the ark is parked at Abinadab's house at Kiriath-Jearim for generations. It's not at the tabernacle. So there's not a specific place where the Shekinah, remember the Ark of the Covenant, it represents the throne of God. It's where the Shekinah dwelt over the mercy seat between the two cherubs. The Shekinah is the old Hebrew word that's not found in the Bible, but is a perfectly legitimate word. That means that which dwells. Well, the Shekinah didn't dwell in the tabernacle during this time. It didn't dwell in the Holy of Holies. So the Lord allowed the people to worship at the high places. He doesn't allow the people to worship idols at the high places. He doesn't allow the people to use the old altars of, to, to, to recycle the altars of the Canaanites. No, they were supposed to, people were supposed to destroy all of that. But he allows them to go up to the high places and worship him there to build a new altar, to sacrifice oxen to Yahweh at the high places. He's letting them, God is letting the Israelites worship in varied locations during this interim period. It's an interim period between the time that the tabernacle was at Shiloh and the time that Solomon would build the temple. 1 Kings 3 refers to this reality during this interim period. 1 Kings 3 verse 2 reads like this. The people were still sacrificing on the high places because there was no house built for the name of Yahweh until those days. In other words, until the days that Solomon built the temple, the house for the name of Yahweh in Jerusalem, the people were still sacrificing on the high places. Once the temple gets built, once Solomon builds the temple, then worshiping on the high places would not be allowed anymore. So what's happening here is that the young women in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel are telling Saul and his servant that Samuel is going to be going up to the high place to bless the sacrifice, to participate in the feast. Because remember, when they sacrificed, they didn't just sacrifice the ox and let the buzzards eat it. No, they quartered it and they consumed parts of the ox. And so the women, the young women, are, are telling Saul and the servant who have asked them, where's the seer? They're saying the seer is going to be going up to the hilltop, to the high place, to engage in this worship. And so the young women encourage Saul and the servant to go quickly. That's, that's what you see here in this language in verse 12, right? The young women say, hurry, hurry now, go. We're getting this narrative of spiritually sharp people. The servant is spiritually sharp. The young women are spiritually sharp. Go, 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 go see the seer. And Saul is just kind of, eh. I mean, he's going. It's just he's kind of spiritually in the haze, spiritually dim. 
Keep reading verse 15. Now a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. And he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Don't miss the sovereignty of God. Don't miss God's absolute control of all of these events. God moved the events so that Saul would be brought to Samuel. Beginning At the beginning of verse 16, we, you, you see this phrase, God says to Samuel, I will send you a man. I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. God says this the day before Saul shows up. As always, God has been in total control. God made the donkeys lost. God moved the donkeys so that they wandered off. God caused that event. God made it difficult for Saul and the servant to find the donkeys so that they would get tired of looking so that the servant would say, hey, let's go see the seer. God moved events so that it was that servant who accompanied Paul, not some other spiritually dim servant, but a spiritually sharp servant who would propose to Saul, did I say Paul? I meant to say Saul. Remember, Paul is Saul of Tarsus, same name. But my point is, God is moving all of these events. He moves the donkeys. He moves the, the situation so it's difficult to find the donkeys, and, and they get exasperated. They get frustrated, and so the servant who's there will recommend that they go to the seer. God caused the servant to have some silver so that Saul wouldn't be so discouraged. He just said, now let's just go home and let's not worry about it because we don't have anything to give to the seer. God caused Samuel to be in town. God caused the young women to be at the perfect spot so that they could guide Saul and the servant to Samuel. There's no such thing as luck. Luck is a myth. Luck is a fiction. Events happen because God controls human history. Now, do we have free will? Absolutely. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man coexist. But make no mistake, God is in complete control. And you see it just in these little events with respect to Samuel and, and God bringing Saul to Samuel. The other thing that we should notice in verses 15 and 16, in addition to the sovereignty of God, is the mercy of God. Israel has rejected Yahweh because they say, give us a king like all the other nations. We don't want the king, the type of king that, that is your design for us. But Yahweh has not rejected Israel. In his mercy, he will provide a leader to them, for them, to deliver them from the Philistines. He doesn't say, you rejected me, adios even though they've rejected him, and even though there will be consequences for their sin, there's always consequences for sin. Even though he will d discipline them, in the midst of divine discipline, he will show them mercy. That's why he's talking about the Philistines here. God makes a reference to the Philistines. The Philistines had been beaten decisively in chapter 7, but that's many, many years in the past. And so now they've returned to oppress Israel. 
Israel was still God's people. And so it's not an accident as you read this text, as you read verses 16 and 17, that the phrase, my people, is repeated four times. Where God says to Samuel, my people, my people, my people, my people, because they're still his people. And even in the face of sin, he is still merciful and compassionate, even to those who he will discipline. God will use Saul to disrupt, not to destroy, but to disrupt Philistine power. In a similar way that he used another S-man, Samson, to disrupt Philistine power, not to destroy it. God will reserve the victory, the honor of destroying, permanently destroying the Philistines. He will reserve that for the one who is a man after his own heart, for the king who fits his design, for David. But that we'll see later in the book of Samuel. Look at verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. That's the fourth reference to my people. God isn't saying here that Saul fits God's pattern for a king of Israel. God is saying, Saul is the one I've chosen, the one I've selected as the king who fits the people's pattern of a king like all the other nations. Look at verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me where the seer's house is. Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. This is almost comical. It's almost funny. Right? Saul is walking up and he sees a man and he says, Tell me who the seer is. And it's the seer. It's Samuel. Samuel says, I'm the seer. Do you understand how precise God's sovereignty is? He brings, he moves events to bring Saul face to face with Samuel. He's not just kind of in the general vicinity. He is face to face with the seer because God has called the seer to anoint Saul as king because God is going to use Saul to disrupt the power of the Philistines. This is a literal fulfillment of a literal prophecy. God gave Samuel a prophecy in verse 16. This time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Remember, prophecy is just another way of saying promise. We believe that God literally fulfills his promises. He literally will save you from the literal lake of fire. And he literally fulfills this promise to Samuel that he will bring him a man man from Benjamin the very next day. This is what God has done because God is a man, God is a God who moves men and moves events while still honoring free will. How he does that, that's above my pay grade. But while still honoring the volition of individuals, he moves a man, Saul, to make his way before his seer, Samuel, because God is in complete control. Keep reading in verse 19, the second half of the verse. 
Samuel says, go up, he's speaking to Saul, go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today, and in the morning I will let you go, and will tell you all that is on your mind. Here we have Samuel validating his authority as a seer, because he's saying, I'm going to see your thoughts. I see your thoughts about the donkeys, about where they are. And I see your other thoughts as well. Keep reading verse 20. As for your donkeys, now Samuel gives the answer about the donkeys. As for your donkeys, which were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's household? You understand what's happening here? Samuel is relaying how God is in complete control. Control of the little things, control of the big things. The little thing, God's seer reveals the donkeys, how they've been lost for three days, where they are now, and probably that they're already home. They're already with the Father. So they've already made their way back to, the, to, to Kish. The reason I say that I include that in what Samuel is probably saying is because Samuel says here, do not set your mind on them. Don't worry about them anymore. You don't have to be concerned about them. Here's the fascinating thing. Who told Samuel that Saul was looking for donkeys? It's not in here. How does Samuel know that Saul is looking for donkeys? And he's been looking for him for three days. He knows because he's a seer, because he sees the things of God, because God reveals them to him. We don't have seers today, by the way. Someone comes up to you and says, I'm a prophet from God, and I reveal this thing, this supernatural thing to you from God. Your radar should come, ding, 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 That grid should say, because we have the revelation, all the revelation that we need from God in the book that he has given us, oh, there's going to be a lot more revelation when Christ returns. But until he returns, he's given us all that we need. Remember, this is an era where there is not a completed canon of Scripture. There is there's a fraction of the Scripture in existence in this era. And so there are all kinds of supernatural events and supernatural seers. And God reveals to this seer, to Samuel, everything about the donkeys, but not just about the donkeys. That's the little thing. Everything about the big thing as well. This is why Samuel says here, all that is desirable in Israel is for you and for your father's household. In other words, God has chosen you to be the king of Israel. Saul gets it. He understands it. When we read the end of verse 20, it's kind of, it's kind of difficult for us to wrap our brains around exactly what Samuel is saying with respect to the kingship. But Saul gets it immediately. Look at verse 21. Saul replied, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak to me in this way? Here Saul is making a literal statement and a hyperbolic statement. A literal statement and a statement of exaggeration. The literal statement is that the tribe of Benjamin is the smallest of all the tribes. That is true. That's literally true. Now, it wasn't true when they were in the Exodus, because in Numbers chapter 1, when they do the, the, the census, 
in the Exodus, Benjamin is the second smallest tribe. But you remember the events of Judges chapter 19 and 20 when the tribe of Benjamin almost goes extinct because in the city that Saul is from, in Gibeah, remember in Gibeah, those horrible events where in Gibeah, the Benjamites of Gibeah, there's a, there's a Levite passing through with his concubine, and the, and the, the Benjamites of Gibeah um, insist on homosexual, they want to they homosexually rape the Levite, and the Levite, uh, uh, the coward that he was, he throws out his woman, he throws out his concubine, and they heterosexually rape her, and they kill her in the evening. It is, it is, it's such a, 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 uh, an abusive, murderous event. She, she dies. Actually, that next morning she dies because of the events of the evening. And so the other tribes of Israel, they gather their forces and they say there will be a reckoning for this rape and murder and the activities of the men of Gibeah. So they engage in warfare against the tribe of Benjamin and they bring them to the brink of extinction. There's only 600 fighting soldiers left, only 600 military men of Benjamin left. And so at, at the, in those chapters of, of Judges, chapters 19 through 20, you see the other tribes of Israel uh, uh, very sad because they're concerned that the tribe of Benjamin is going to go into extinction. This is the history that has preceded these events. And so when Saul says, we're the smallest of all the tribes, that is literally true. I think it's, it's also another message that we get in, in the narrative that Saul is from Gibeah, this place of horror, this grotesque event that happened in Gibeah. That's where Saul's from. Where's David from? Beit Lachem, the house of bread. What's the beautiful event that happened in Beit Lachem? Somebody help me. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, this beautiful event of faithfulness and provision, this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, for Ruth of Moabitess, not even from, from the people of Israel. You have this beautiful, a beautiful event. And in fact, David is a descendant of Ruth from Bethlehem. But Saul, on the other hand, is from this city where these horrible events happened not that many years in the past, not that many generations in the past. So there's a literal... When Saul says, I'm from the, the smallest of the tribes... That's literally true. He's from the tribe of Benjamin, which is the smallest of all the tribes at this time. But then he also makes a statement that is a a hyperbole, that is an exaggeration. He says, my family is the least of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin. This is probably a statement of humility. Remember, his father, Kish, is is a, a, a mighty man of valor. He's maybe a chieftain, he's one of power and and wealth and prestige. I think Saul is in shock when Samuel is giving him these words, and he's saying, why me? These are really words of humility, and so we should give credit where credit is due. Paul responds, excuse me, Saul responds 
to God's call with humility. Moses reacted in a similar way in Exodus 3 verse 11 where Moses says in response to God's call, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? Jeremiah responded with a similar sort of approach as Moses in Jeremiah 1.6 when God called Jeremiah. There Jeremiah said, Alas, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I am a youth. But maybe it's better to compare Saul, not to Moses or to Jeremiah, but to compare him to Gideon. Remember Gideon in Judges 6, verse 15, Gideon says in response to God's call, he says, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. You see, in many ways, Saul is much more of a Gideon than he is a Moses or a Jeremiah. Because like Gideon, Saul is a man of weak faith, weak faith in God. Like Gideon, Saul trusts God only reluctantly, slowly, sluggish, sluggishly, reluctantly. And like Gideon, Saul finishes very poorly. Keep reading in chapter 9, verse 22, we read this. Then Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who were invited who were about 30 men. Apparently, up on the high place, there's not just an altar, but there's a dining hall. And so Saul gives, Samuel gives Saul the place of honor at the dining hall because he is the man who would be king. Verse 23, Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion that I gave you concerning which I said to you, set it aside. Then the the cook took up the leg with what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here is what has been reserved. Set it before you and eat, because it, is, has, because it has been kept for you until the appointed time, since I said, I have invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. In advance, Samuel said to the cook, You reserve the choice piece of the of the meal, the choice piece of the meat, the choice piece of the sacrifice for Saul. The reason he does it in advance is because, of course, God told Samuel in advance, this time tomorrow I will bring a man and that man is going to be the king. Samuel doesn't like this. The man of God, the seer, doesn't like any of this. Remember, Samuel's response to the people when the people called for a king like all the nations, was displeasing evil. That's the way he viewed it, and he viewed it accurately. Samuel doesn't like this idea that there's going to be a king, and he doesn't like this idea that the people are rejecting God. He's okay with a king king who would follow the pattern of God, God's design, but he doesn't like the idea that the king is going to, be consistent with the people's desire to be like all the nations. But God tells Samuel to give them the king. And so Samuel's only response is to obey. He obeys God when he doesn't understand what God is doing. He obeys God when, in fact, he doesn't like what God is doing. It's a great lesson for us. 
in order to do what Samuel is doing here, we must trust God. You must trust that God knows what he's doing. You must trust that God loves you, that God has your best interest at heart. You must trust that God is in absolute control, that he is sovereign, in other words. You must trust that God will bring a reckoning. See, we, in Christianity, we shy away from the reckoning. Oh, he's a doomsdayer. Oh, he's talking about the negative stuff. As one pastor put it, with his hands, wringing his hands, we don't talk about those things in our church. No, this is an issue of faith. Samuel obeys God because he trusts that God is sovereign. He trusts that God is in control. He trusts that God has his best interest, the best interest of Israel at heart. He trusts that God loves Israel. And he trusts, make no mistake, that God will bring a reckoning, a reckoning of rejoicing for those who follow God. And a reckoning of great punishment for the rebels You see, if God doesn't bring a reckoning, then God should not be trusted. Make fun of him like everybody else if he's not going to bring a reckoning. He's worthy of mocking if he is either unable or unwilling to bring justice. Mock his name if that's who he is. But on the other hand, if in fact he is the judge of the earth that the scripture describes which Samuel would have known, because that's a passage way early, back in Genesis. Then this is something that motivates Samuel. It motivates Samuel to do that which Samuel doesn't want to do, to anoint a king, a king who fits the pattern of rebellion against God. God Samuel doesn't want to do it. Samuel doesn't like doing it, but Samuel obeys. He submits to God. Because he trusts in the essence of God. He trusts who God is and what God will do. It's a great, great lesson for us. Next time that we're together, Samuel will anoint, will obey God. Will anoint this man who will be a bad king for Israel. Samuel knows it. Samuel will anoint this man who fits Israel's desire to have a king like all the nations. We'll see that next time we're together. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We praise you because you are a God to be feared and to be loved and to be praised. We ask that you break us of our rebellion, break us of our pride, break us of our appetite to wander from you, draw us to you. And yet at the same time, we recognize our volition. We recognize our free will. And so we ask that you pull us to you either by the carrot or the stick that we may worship you and praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.